When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I hope you've all had a wonderful Christmas holiday break. It's been a busy week, at least in the news. It's been a really busy week. We have the stock market hitting an all-time high this week. That's something neat that's happened, but people take this to mean different things. So I'm going to be talking about this. We have the Boeing CEO being fired. He was canned this week. Dennis Millenberg, who used to be the Boeing CEO, is now going to be replaced by David Calhoun, who is the chairman of Boeing. So this transition is happening. I'm going to be talking about this and how investors are responding to it. And then we have the big subject that I want to talk about. If you don't know, in my previous episode, I did a video talking about these different notable investors like Ray Dalio, Jeffrey Gunlock, Warren Buffett, Howard Marks, and how they view forecasting, how they view predicting. Warren Buffett, I highlighted as one that notably does not make predictions. He doesn't try to guess how the economy is going to perform in the future. As many of you pointed out in many comments, I swear there are hundreds of them that talk about the amount of cash that Warren Buffett has. It doesn't matter what Warren Buffett tells, but what he does with this $130 billion in cash, I've never understood why Warren Buffett has 100 plus billion dollars in cash unless he was predicting a recession. Does he feel everything is overvalued? Buffett might say he ignores market projections, but he sure doesn't act like it. He's sitting on cash for a reason. He knows prices are inflated. I'm wondering why Warren Buffett is not buying anything now. He's waiting just like last time before the recession. So obviously it's no secret that Warren Buffett has a lot of cash. He has $128 billion in cash. I'm going to be talking about that as well. Now, before I jump into any of that, I want to give a quick portfolio update over the past week. Uh, Like I tell new people, this is my portfolio. It's all real. There's no catch to it. This is a real portfolio. The value of it's $70,000 right now. The portfolio, the whole strategy is centered around me getting paid money all the time from the holdings that I have. So whether I buy companies, whether I buy bonds, everything that I own pays me money passively as I go about my day. And those payments happen quite frequently. I can look at this and see that just page after page after page, I get paid dividends. It happens so often that after a while, you almost become numb to it. Like today, I just opened up my account and I have $105 in cash sitting in my brokerage account. 105 bucks. I didn't deposit that money. I didn't work for that $105. That is money paid to me in dividends from my portfolio. It's put in cash. I have auto invest on. So the next time when the market opens, M1 Finance, which is this brokerage, will automatically invest that money. Now, if you're interested in looking at the specific companies that I'm invested in, and you want to get ideas of looking up different companies that pay dividends that I've researched and looked at, you can look at any single video that I have. And in the description of the video, there's a few links. One of them says, view my main portfolio. If you click on that link, it brings you to my same exact portfolio I have. Then you can click on any different pie and look at all the companies I'm invested in. So like I said, every single holding in my portfolio pays me money residually. I can go to any one of these. I can go to healthcare here. And every one of these companies pays dividends quarterly. So Johnson Johnson does, Pfizer does, Amgen. All of these pay dividends. If they stop or discontinue paying me that money, then I sell them. It's very easy to manage and it's very easy to create a passive stream of income out of it. If I look at this, I have the $105 sitting here in my cash balance. I did not personally contribute a dime of that $105. So let's go ahead and take a look at where that money came from. If I go to the activity tab here, if I go back earlier this month, on the 17th, it says trading, two buys, 
$30. I look at that. I bought some store capital, $30 worth of LTC properties. Okay. That was all from dividends. I didn't deposit any of that $30. I fast forward a few days up until the 23rd. So about six days later, I click on this one buy $36, bought me some Vanguard bonds. So those are mostly European bonds. That's $36. I didn't deposit a dime of that. That's money that I got paid in dividends from Dominion Energy, Home Depot, Waste Management, these different companies. It got added together and it purchased $36 worth of the CTF. Now I fast forward a little bit further than that from the 23rd to the 27th. So just four days later, another $29 invested. If I click on this, $29 was invested in the Home Depot. Now $29 in Home Depot invested. Again, I did not contribute a dime of that $29.70. 100% of that is from dividends. These are from my different bond ETFs. They got paid out. That money added up to about 30 bucks and that $30 was automatically invested to buy some Home Depot. Then I look at this again on the 27th, I received more dividends, $3.11 from Lockheed Martin, from Bank of America, $9. And then from the Vanguard Total International Bond ETF, $93. This is one that pays quarterly. It's a pretty big holding. It paid me $100. Guess where that money ended up in my cash balance? Do you see the story that this activity log tells? This looks like just a little activity log of a brokerage, right? But it tells a story. It tells a story of money being invested into these companies. These companies paying me money that gets added together and then it's reinvested, purchasing more of those companies so that I get paid more money. And that has happened one time, happened again, and it happened again, and it's going to happen again on Monday. Hundreds of dollars being reinvested continually in my portfolio within half a month. This is just from December 16th. We're not even to the end of the month yet, but yet you're seeing the cycle of compounding wealth happen right now. I haven't done anything here. This money being reinvested here, reinvested here, and reinvested here, and again on Monday, that's compounding wealth happening in real time. When you start to see this happen with your own money, it starts to become clear, oh, this is why the, the rich get richer. This is why you hear stories about people earning money in their sleep without having to actively do much. This is what happens with it. You put in the upfront work to fund your portfolio, to buy these companies, and then they continually pay you this money. I'm seeing this play out for myself, and it's really, really motivating. Seeing my money work this hard for me, where my money goes out and it earns a paycheck in and of itself, and it says, hey, we earned hundreds of dollars for you. This is my money working for me. My ownership in these companies is paying me these dividends and it's just a revolving circle where they pay me dividends, it gets reinvested, then I own more of it, then I earn more dividends. I'm seeing this play out live, it's very motivating. And I'm telling you, out of all the ways, at least that I found, to make money, most of the ways of making money involve actively working for it, involve clocking into your day job. That's not the best way to make money. That's not the way that really wealthy people make their money. They make it this way, where they click on the past week here. This is the past five business days in my brokerage. $107.76 earned in dividends. Past five days. I didn't do anything for this. I just look at it and go, oh, I earned that much money. This is the way that I want to make money. This is what motivates me to deposit so much money, to work in my budget, to wrap my finances around this portfolio. I have to put the portfolio first and decide what else I'm going to do with my budget afterwards. This type of thing comes first because I want to be one of the people where a lot of my money is working for me. I'm not constantly working for my money. So 
that's the situation I want to get in. The more that I contribute to this portfolio, the more I'm going to see these earned dividends coming every single week. I want to see this portfolio. I want it to generate thousands and thousands of dollars in dividends. It went up from $2,000 just a week ago to $2,116. This is speeding up pretty fast. So for people that haven't started investing, I get it. You know, this may look confusing. Investing is it's intimidating to put your money into something that you don't fully understand. We can't predict the future. We don't know what the market's going to be like next year. Uh, I have a challenge for people that haven't started investing, that have these reasons why they're staying out of the market. I want you to go to somebody that's over 50 years old, let's say. Somebody that's over 50 years old, that's probably at the end of their working career. This is somebody that you trust to actually give you good advice. And I want you to ask them, when should I start investing? When should I start to dollar cost average and put a portion of my paycheck into the stock market? When should I start that? It's a pretty simple question. Ask somebody that you know and trust that's over 50 years old when that should happen. Every one of them, I guarantee you, unless they're just trolling you or unless they don't want actually what's best for you, will say to start investing now, to start getting the habit of putting money into the market right now. That's what everybody wishes that they did earlier. They wish they started investing earlier. That is one of the biggest financial regrets that people make is they keep putting it off. They keep waiting. They don't invest. They think, well, maybe it's not the right time. And they delay, 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 delay. The earlier you start getting in the habit of this, the better. To be honest with you guys, there's really no excuses with you anymore. There's no excuses to not invest. Before, it used to be a rich man's game where just to buy one share of a stock, it would cost you $7. To be able to even open an account, you had a minimum deposit of $5,000. They had all these barred entries that made it so only wealthy people could invest. Now you have brokerages like M1 Finance. I have a link in the description to this brokerage. It's for U.S. residents. They offer everything for free. There's no hidden fees on anything. You can go in and buy fractional shares of companies. So even if you have a very limited income, you can start investing now and building a future for yourself now. So we don't have the same excuses we had before. We have the knowledge base now on videos on YouTube. We have brokerages that allow free investing. We really have the option to invest. There's no reason to put it off anymore. So M1 Finance is for the US. For people that live outside of the US, there's lots of other options. I've mentioned them in previous videos, but you can use brokers like, uh, I believe Robinhood's coming to the UK. So that's an option for people that live in the UK, but there's lots of different options that are very cheap now. The main point is you need to start investing if you haven't. It's important to get started in this. Okay, now moving on from that, I have to talk about this subject that came up from the previous episode I did. If you haven't seen the previous episode, uh, it's pretty much this video I put together that talks about these really big name, respectable investors that have completely different views on forecasting the future. Forecasting the future of economies, of how the stock market will do. They have a lot of different opinions on it. And Warren Buffett is one of the ones that says that he doesn't predict the future. He doesn't try to predict how the stock market's going to do. He doesn't factor that into his investing. But many people pointed out, and I mean dozens and dozens of comments, pointed out that Warren Buffett has $128 billion in cash. As this article title says, Warren Buffett has $128 billion in cash to burn, and analysts can't figure out why he isn't spending it. So $128 billion? That's a lot of money to have in cash. That's almost enough to buy Netflix. You could buy Target twice with that amount of money. 
You can buy Tesla with that amount of money, just in the money he has in cash. So he's sitting there with this amount of money in cash, which cash, by the way, they, they call it cash, but he's not sitting there like uh, Walter White or Heisenberg with $100 billion in his basement. He has it invested in short-term treasuries. So that's what they call cash or cash equivalents is he has it invested in the U.S. government short-term treasuries, probably one-month to three-month treasury bills, and it just continually gets reinvested back in those. So it is invested, but it's invested in things that have the same level of security as cash because the U.S. government is insuring treasury bills then they are insured the same way that they would insure their own money, right? Either way, it's, it's the U.S. government who's backing it. So either way there, Warren Buffett has a lot of money invested in cash. And people have taken this number, the $128 billion, and everybody kind of gets different meanings from it. Some people say, well, he might not be saying it, but he's obviously predicting a recession will be soon so that he can use that money to buy these companies at the cheap, right? You can use that $128 billion and scoop in and buy all these companies cheap. There's lots of different people saying different things like that. Now, what I like to do when I get numbers like this, $128 billion in cash, most people look at this singularly. They just look at that one number, $128 billion, and they don't add proper context to it. So what I like to do is add some context to it. Like the first bit of context that I would add is not how much money he has in cash just alone, but how much money does he have in cash compared to how much money does he have invested? Right here, we have Berkshire Hathaway. This is the amount of money that Warren Buffett has invested into the stock market. The market cap of Berkshire is $553.7 billion, over half a trillion dollars. Now all of a sudden, $128 billion in cash doesn't seem quite as insane. If you put 128 next to 553, okay, he has a lot of cash, but he also has a tremendous amount invested. He has $550 billion invested. In fact, if you put these together, 128 divided by 550, you get roughly 23%. That means that he has a 23% cash position right now. It's not like he has all of his money in cash. He has 20%. If I go and I look at my portfolio here, I have 80% invested into equities. And then I have 20% into bonds and pretty safe bonds. These are investor grade bonds. And then a good portion of them are treasuries, one to three year, three to seven, seven to 10. Then I have some Vanguard international bonds. So a good chunk of my portfolio, 20% are also in bonds, which is pretty close to what Warren Buffett's doing. He has a good portion of his portfolio in bonds right now. I have 20% of mine in bonds. What I say that me having this security right here with these bonds, am I saying that I'm predicting a recession in the near future? No. I'm in the same boat as Warren Buffett there where I look at this and I say, I just like having some money invested into these safe securities off to the side so that if we do have something bad happen, I'm not in a desperate situation. I want to be in the situation where I have some security here. That's why I have 20% allocated to bonds. Because if we do hit a recession, if something bad happens, the rest of my portfolio will fall quite a bit but the bonds will hold their value a lot better than the rest of my portfolio, especially the portion of bonds that are treasuries. These will hold their value the most. So that's the first bit of context there. Yes, he has $128 billion in cash. That's a lot of money, but he has over half a trillion dollars invested. If you had a portfolio where you had half a trillion dollars plus invested into the stock market and you kept $100 billion in cash equivalents, I don't think you'd be saying, I'm predicting a recession in the future. I think you're just having a level of security there. So if you put those together, I don't think it seems like quite as much money in cash when you already have that much money invested. The next bit of context I'll add is what Warren Buffett actually has to say about the topic because he's confronted about it. 
In this shareholder meeting, he's asked about the exact same subject. There's a shareholder of Berkshire Hathaway that says, hey, Warren, you're not practicing what you preach. You say to, you know, not time the market, but here you are holding all of this cash on the side. So aren't you trying to time the market? And then he highlights the amount of money that he could have made had he invested this in index funds. So I'll go ahead and play some of the question here. But by your having Berkshire hold such a large amount of cash and T-bills, it seems to me you don't practice what you preach. I'm thinking that a good alternative would be for you to invest most of Berkshire's excess cash in a well-diversified index fund until you find an attractive acquisition or buyback stock. Had you done that over the past 15 years, all the time keeping the $20 billion cash cushion you want, I estimate that at the end of 2018, the company's $112 billion balance in cash, cash equivalents, and short-term investments in T-bills would have instead been worth about $155 billion. What is your response to what I say? Now, the first thing I'll comment on this question is Warren Buffett says he's nice. He says that's a perfectly decent question. But when I get questions like that, if you would have invested in this, you would have made this amount of money. Okay, it's really easy to highlight how much money you would have made by making specific investments in the past. Hindsight's 2020. If we knew what would have made really good money in the past, then everybody would be the best investors in the world. So that premise of how much money you would have made in the past is kind of dumb. But the question still stands for Warren. Why are you holding so much money in cash? That's the part that I want to focus on is why he's holding this money in cash. The one thing you should very definitely understand about Berkshire is that we run the business in a way that we think is consistent with serving shareholders who have virtually all of their net worth in Berkshire. I happen to be in that position myself, but I would do it that way under any circumstances. We have a lot of people who trust us and who, who uh, really have disproportionate amounts of Berkshire compared to their net worth uh, if you were to follow standard investment procedures. And we want to make money for everybody, but we want to make very, very sure that we don't lose permanently money from anybody, for anybody that buys our stock somewhere around intrinsic business value to begin with. We, we just have an, we have an aversion to having a million-plus shareholders, maybe as many as two million, and having a lot of them ever really lose money if they're willing to stay with us for a while. And Right there, I think Warren Buffett highlights one of his main reasons is his company, he knows, he's called the Oracle of Omaha. People look at him, Oracle means like you're a messenger from God. People look at him as somebody that he's an investing legend. And the last thing he wants to do right at the end of his life is have some kind of mishap where he loses a lot of people money. That's not the legacy Warren Buffett wants. So he's going to be extremely cautious with his money at this point in time. He wants the shareholders that he says he has millions of shareholders and they have a disproportionate amount of their wealth tied directly to Berkshire. So he has that weight on his shoulders, knowing millions of people have a ton of their livelihood, their net worth tied up in his company. 
So having 23% of the money that he has in short-term treasuries, I think gives him a sense of security for those people that they might not get the absolute best returns with the S&P 500, but they have a level of security that when we go into a panic, when there's a recession, when things are going south, Berkshire will be completely protected against anything. And not only will they be protected, he'll have the opportunity to also pick up some good deals there. So I think that's one of the bigger things there. And that's part of the reason that I have 20% of my portfolio in bonds and then a portion of that in treasuries. It's the same reason. I want to have some security. This is a lot of my net worth tied up into this portfolio. It's not all of it, but it's a good amount tied up into my portfolio. And I just want to be cautious with it. I want to have some money and secure assets that even during a recession, they won't fall that much. So again, I don't think it's crazy what Warren Buffett's doing. I don't think he's signaling anything of the future. I think he's just being really cautious. He knows that a lot of people are counting on him. The last thing I'll mention on this subject is just to highlight another difference between scale. So he's working with a much larger scale that allows him to make unique deals that you can only make when you have a huge amount of money you're working with. These are individually negotiated deals with preferred shares that during economic crises, people like Warren Buffett can get on the phone with a company that's struggling and he can say, hey, I can help you out, but you're going to have to make a really good deal for me. So he has opportunities during recessions that common shareholders do not. And that is a difference between scales. So another thing that he's looking at is he has been able to negotiate these great deals. When he has all this cash sitting on the side, he's the one that people go to to save their company. They call him on the phone and say, Warren Buffett, we need some money. We'll do anything for it. We'll do whatever we can. We need some money right now. So I'll give you a couple examples of that. Buffett to invest $5 billion in Goldman Sachs. This was in 2008 during the recession. It says Berkshire will buy $5 billion of perpetual preferred stock that carries a 10% dividend. So Warren Buffett got on the phone, talked to Goldman Sachs, and said, I'll buy some of your stock. I'll get preferred shares. I want a 10% dividend yield. Wouldn't that be nice if you could negotiate deals like that? That's something that his scale allows him to do. Another one is Berkshire and Bank of America. In the recession again, Buffett had bought $5 billion of Bank of America preferred stock with a 6% dividend. If you don't know, Bank of America does not normally yield 6%. This is a deal that Warren Buffett was able to negotiate because of a bank that was struggling during a recession. You can only make these kind of deals if you have the scale that Warren Buffett does. I'll highlight one more. This is GE. Under the deal struck in October 2008, GE agreed to pay Berkshire a 10% annual dividend or $300 million a year. GE also agrees to pay Mr. Buffett a 10% premium worth another $300 million whenever it's redeemed the preferred stock. So... Warren Buffett keeps this money on the side, knowing that his scale will allow him to make these incredibly good deals with these unbelievably high dividend yields, like 10% that he can negotiate because of the scale that he has. So he does have a lot of different reasons why he could be holding this money on the side. Okay, so moving on from that, I want to talk about a couple of news items here. One of them is the stock market hit an all-time high, and this happens frequently. I have heard the same news of the stock market hitting an all-time high over and over again. That's part of the process of an economy growing is the economy is tied to the stock market. The economy is growing. The stock market should continually be hitting an all-time high. That should happen throughout time. As, as time goes on, the economy will get bigger. So that isn't surprising news in and of itself. If I look at this, there are some statistics that I think are kind of misleading. So people will say how much the stock market has gone up this year. If I look at the beginning of this year, here's the S&P 500. And I dragged this over here. It's gone up 30%, which is a lot so far. So we're closing out the year with year to date, it going up a lot. Now, if I go over here and I just give a little bit bigger of a timeline, 
you can see that there was a dip right before the beginning of the year. So a little bit misleading there. If we actually go to before this dip, it's gone up 10%. You got to look at these statistics, the numbers people have given out. If we actually go all the way back to 2018 and the high there, it's gone up 12% in almost two years. So again, it can look misleading if you just look at the one year where it's going up 30%. If you look at a bigger time horizon, you can see that in the past two years, the S&P 500 has climbed 12 to 13%, not quite as drastic. The next news item I wanted to talk about was Boeing. Another big story we are following tonight. Boeing has fired its CEO, Dennis Muhlenberg. The world's largest aerospace company has had its reputation and bottom line damaged by two crashes that left 346 people dead. That's right. Dennis Muhlenberg, who is the CEO of Boeing, one of the largest companies in the world, was fired this past week. And he's being replaced by David Calhoun. He's somebody that I actually did a video responding to one of David Calhoun's interviews that he gave. I thought it was a very strong interview. Well, Boeing thinks that he's the right guy to be the CEO. They're replacing Dennis Muhlenberg. And this comes as the result of a lot of frustration with Dennis. So I won't go through all the reasons that they fired him. There's a lot of different things that play into this. Part of it is just simple rebranding for Boeing, trying to give out a different image that they're under new leadership, they're going to be change, rebranding, that's part of it. Other parts were specific frustrations. One of them was that Dennis early on gave a specific timeline of when he said the 737 MAX would be back in the air. Now you have the FAA, who's the regulatory authority, who they're the ones that decide when the plane gets back in the air. So you have the CEO of Boeing giving investors a timeline that says, hey, we're going to have the planes back in the air. And the FAA is saying, uh, excuse me, you don't decide when the planes are going to be back in the air. We decide. We're the regulatory authority. We'll say when they're ready to be back in the air. And the FAA was very upset at Dennis for doing that. It hurt relationships with them. They were extremely frustrated by Dennis making this timeline of when the planes would be back in the air. That was one of the factors. Another one is calls for his resignation. I, I played clips about this before of different senators and, and different people calling for his resignation. A lot of people that are families of the victims are calling for his resignation. I think that that played a role, that Boeing wanted to rebrand. They needed to get rid of him. A lot of people are very upset and they need something to change. Dennis was a CEO, so he's the one that should be responsible for this type of thing happening and that needs a change. And then there's other factors. Uh, the FAA did not like the documentation. They halted production on their plane line. They had the Starship have a failure just in the past two weeks. All these type of things are not going good for Boeing. I think that the Boeing board has been pretty frustrated with Dennis Millenberg, so they're changing leaderships. Now, it's going to be difficult for people to criticize David Calhoun in the same way. He wasn't the one in charge, so that shields him against a lot of the criticisms that they could launch against Dennis. So this is all changes that happen for Boeing. So how does this affect the company? How does this affect the stock? As far as investors are concerned, it was a positive change. You can see right here when the news broke that Dennis was being fired, the stock went up about 3%. I think most people aren't upset with Dennis being fired. At this point, he was more of a liability to the company than an asset, so they're getting rid of him. All right, let's get to some questions here. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. That's Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. You can also message me on Twitter or Instagram. There's links in the description to those and leave a YouTube comment. First one's from Andrew. He says, Hey, Joseph, this is my first time reaching out to you. Your YouTube content is pretty addictive. I'm in the process of watching your entire series and I'm finishing episode 29 now. Forgive me if you've already addressed this, but I read an interesting article this morning 
with a three-minute clip at the bottom from the Squawk Box, where the host, Becky Quick, is so emboldened as to say that putting any of your money into bonds is a poor move. I'd be interested to see your take on this little clip. I find this particularly interesting as I watched your episode regarding the most important aspect of investing is risk management. The episode featuring Howard Marks clips. Congratulations on building your channel. Your content has reinvigorated my investing. Thank you. Best regards. All right, Andrew. Well, thank you for the email. Let's go ahead and watch the relevant part of that clip. Are you pounding the table with that? Because if you think we really could be up another 20 percent, people are missing out on the opportunity right now. Yeah, we are pounding the table. And we're also trying to point to the fact that uh, things like a 60-40 allocation, which has been something, uh, you know, clients and advisors have talked about for a long time. That's stupid, it may be right? dead today. Yeah, I, I think um, that's stupid. I think it's been dead a while. The, You're the, never going to risks... make enough money if you have 40 percent of Correct. your portfolio in, in bonds. Well, and- okay, so that's Becky Quick right there. And... She's saying that she thinks the 60-40, 60% equities, 40% bonds portfolio allocation, which is historically one of the most popular ones that financial advisors would assign to pretty much everybody. That was kind of the default portfolio. She says she thinks it's stupid that you're, quote, never going to make enough money that way. That's what she's saying. You're never going to make enough money with 40% of your money in bonds. Later on, she talks about her allocation. Andy, what's your breakdown, your own personal breakdown? Oh, uh, 80% plus in equities. Me too. I'm 100% in equities. Yeah. I, that's still? A, still, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I have some cash right. so that I make sure I've got a cushion so that I'm not locked into it, but yeah. I don't have anything in bonds. Right. Yeah. That's where she says it, that she has 100% of her invested cash into equities. 100% into companies, no bonds. Uh, she says she has some cash on the side, right? But all of her invested money is into equities. Now, as far as my reaction to that, I think it's really interesting to see what her portfolio allocation is, right? Because... Uh, I looked it up online. I think she has a net worth, at least these little estimators. I don't think they're that accurate, but it pegs it somewhere around $9 million, which doesn't sound too outlandish to me. She's a main personality on CNBC, so I assume she has a pretty big net worth by now. But let's assume that she has around $9 million invested and she doesn't hold any bonds. She just holds a little bit of cash. What she's doing is saying that the opportunity cost of holding any bonds is too big. I'd rather just have my money in equities. And that's a risk that I'm sure that she has taken on knowing full well the risk assessment with it. I bet you the stock market could, we could enter a recession and something bad could happen and the economy could fall Over the next three months, it could fall 60%, and her portfolio value would fall 60% right along with the stock market, and I bet you Becky would stay invested through that. She'd probably not sell a single share. She'd probably keep contributing to it. She has enough money. She has stable income. She's highly employable beyond CNBC. Even if she got fired there, she could find work. She doesn't really view this as a risk to keep all in equities. She just views it as as an instrument that makes your money work harder for you than bonds do. So that's the way that she's viewing it. You have other people like uh, Warren Buffett who have some money in cash and he views it like he has all these people depending on him. The stakes are a little bit higher when you're working with hundreds of billions of dollars. But I think this illustrates that I don't think either of them are wrong. They're looking at their specific situation. They're analyzing the risk that is associated with it and they're making decisions based off of that. So Howard Marks, that's what he's explaining to do is look at the risks in the market. Look at the risks of your own situation. Do you have transferable skills? If you were to become unemployed, if you got laid off or got fired, could you get a job doing something else? Do you have high expenses? What is your personal situation? You need to base your portfolio around that. So saying 60-40 isn't right, 80-20 isn't right, 100% equities, picking one size fits all is probably not going to be correct because one of those portfolios will fit better with different personality types, 
different employment situations and people that have different levels of expenses. So with my situation, I've kind of diced it down the middle there. 80-20 is a good mix that I really like. I like splitting it between different asset allocations between bonds and then real estate and then your traditional equities. It's a portfolio allocation I like. It fits with my risk tolerance pretty well, but that's mostly my opinion on it is that you have to find the amount of risk you're willing to take on. The biggest thing that can be damaging to an investor is locking in permanent loss by selling when their portfolio goes down. Not only do you have temporary loss if your portfolio goes down in value, but you lock in those losses if you sell when it goes down. So if going to a more conservative portfolio allocation avoids you locking in permanent loss, that is something that's beneficial to you. If you know that there's no chance you would ever sell when your portfolio goes down, then maybe you can be more aggressive. So that's my take on it. You have to really ask yourself, what would happen if the stock market went down 50%? Make your decisions based off of that. Assume that at some point, the stock market is going to drop 30 to 50%. Make your portfolio allocation based off of that assumption. Dave says, hi, Joseph, really enjoy your channel and all of your videos since discovering it only weeks ago. You've probably already discussed this on one of your videos. But what are your favorite financial and investing books, especially ones that have helped you set up your allotments and investing style? Many thanks for all of your work and sharing all aspects of your investing. Merry Christmas. Okay, Dave. Well, I appreciate the email and I'm glad you're enjoying the channel. Merry Christmas to you as well. Um, I'll give you three or four books that I've really enjoyed. So none of these are like specific instructions on investing. More of them are, they're, they're more principled, right? They, they change your perspective on life and money. And these are things that have changed the way that I view things. So um, the first one I'll name off is kind of a given. It's one that everybody's aware of, or at least have heard of, but Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Now I know he he's getting some flack now because he's really monetizing this book. I mean, he came out with a book, sold millions and millions of them, but now he's doing all these training seminars and real estate flipping courses and all that stuff that He's just using it to monetize it. But the book itself, especially the principles that it teaches, I think are really good. It's a story between um, having two dads and one of them was highly educated, but never knew how to make his money work for him. And he always viewed things as how can he go and trade his time for money? The other one, you know, did kind of the opposite, that he was always looking at how he could build equity and things, ownership and things, how he could own different projects that he's working on. And you can kind of guess which one actually became rich. So it, it's a, a really illustrative story. It's, it's a pretty fun and easy read, but that's a good one. He does lean heavily towards real estate, real assets. You know, he thinks that real estate is the way to invest. So there's not too much stock market oriented stuff there, but the principles behind that book are pretty good. The next one I'll list off is Beating the Street by Peter Lynch. This was one of the first ones that I read on the stock market, and he will just get you pumped up to look at companies, to invest in them, to really buy ownership in companies that you think have great growth potential, that will give back to shareholders, that will expand into different markets and expand into different territories. Peter Lynch was an absolute genius. The Magellan Fund that he ran is very difficult to beat those type of results, and he did it by things that he considers just common sense. He just implemented a lot of common sense. He used different edges that he had. He looked at companies in a very simple way, and it led to pretty good results. So that's one that I really enjoyed reading that's a lot more tailored specifically towards the stock market. Another one that's all about the stock market, and this one is more of a cerebral uh, kind of deep thinking, really makes you think at a, a higher level. So he calls it Secondary thought, this one's called The Most Important Thing, Uncommon Sense by Howard Marks. This book by Howard Marks, he really does a good job at making you have second level thought. So 
I'll just give you a for instance. Most people would say, hey, Disney streaming service, I think it's going to do very well. So what I'm going to do, invest in the company Disney on the assumption that their streaming service will will do well. That's kind of first level thinking. Second level thinking would be, well, if I invest in Disney, but I have the same thoughts that everybody else has, and they also think that Disney will do well, then everybody else is investing in Disney as well. So what I need to do is look at what everybody else is thinking as well. And I need to think, do I think Disney will do better than everybody else is assuming it will do? Or do I think it will do worse than everybody else is already assuming it will do? So he teaches you how to think on these second levels, to take these assumptions that are already priced into securities and to think beyond that on how to gain an edge on it. And he just has such a great way of going into all these different subjects. And it's an exercise for your brain. I like it because I read the book and it really does make you think about stuff in, in ways that you haven't before. I think it's a great book if you're into challenging your already preconceived notions, if you're into you know, thinking about a subject on a deeper level, Howard Marks is really good at making you rethink subjects that you've already visited before. And I'll give you one more. This is the last one I'll give. It's it's purely for entertainment. So this is one if you just want to have a uh, investment business-related entertaining read. It's called Bad Blood, The Secret Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. And it's by John Carreyou, who is a Wall Street Journal journalist. So he is the one that really unfolded this whole issue at Theranos. Theranos is the company that Elizabeth Holmes started. It was the blood testing device that she was creating. She received billions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars from a lot of different investors. And her company became worth like $9 billion at one point. But truth and reality began to diverge early on in the story with Theranos. And it continued to diverge over a longer period of time until it grew to a flat out scam. John Kerry really lays out everything that happened in this whole story. And it's pretty amazing. I think it's uh, really well written. It's a little technical. So he has like every detail in this book. So it's, it's chock full of details. It's a pretty heavy read. It's a little bit technical. But I think it's a pretty interesting story if you're into that type of stuff. It's going to be made into movies. I think it's already a couple documentaries on it. But the book is really good. All right. Andy says, hey there. Merry Christmas. I love your show and look forward to new episodes every week. I'm 37. I paid off my home. Uh, good job there, Andy, paying off your home at 37. Says, I have no debt at the moment. I thought that I wanted to save my money and get into real estate, but I'm a busy business owner and family man. So once I learned about dividend growth investing, it made way more sense to me and I'm all in. I currently have about $28,000 invested into fairly conservative and safe companies, according to simplysafedividends.com, even some bond funds, and I'm averaging about a 4% yield. Since listening to you, I switched from Robinhood to M1 Finance and love it. About a year and a half ago, I started a traditional IRA, I don't qualify for Roth IRA, through a local broker that recommended American funds, and my wife and I are currently putting about $1,374 a month into it. You say about, but then you exact a dollar amount, 1374 So I bet you're pretty accurate on that, saying you're, you put about that much money into your IRA. So um, since starting DGI, my impression is that I'd like to quit my IRA and redirect that $1,374 a month into my own portfolio. Maybe that's a terrible idea. What do you think? Thanks in advance, Andy. All right, Andy. Well, I appreciate the question. It's funny that you bring that up with, you know, you wanting to go into real assets, real estate and owning rental income properties, but you found dividend growth investing and you see the benefits of it. That's a similar situation that I'm in, right? So I have enough money that I could go out and put a down payment on different rental income properties, but 
I grew up in a family that owned rental properties. My parents owned them, and I saw the amount of work with keeping the property up, mowing the lawns, renting it out, dealing with tenants' issues and that stuff, then breaking things, you know, potential lawsuits. It has all these different things that come along with actual real estate that you have to deal with. With dividend growth investing, you get a similar fill. You know, you're collecting rent checks from all these different properties, but you don't have to deal with the headache of actually dealing with any of the companies. They just deal with themselves. So I also like that aspect of it a lot. Now, in regards to your question, you have a traditional IRA that you're contributing $1,374 a month. And then you're asking, should you stop contributing to that? And should you put it into M1 Finance or your dividend growth portfolio? This is a tough one to answer. You're 37 years old. You're going to have to wait till you're 59 to be able to use any of that money that goes into your IRA. And if you're not able to contribute to your Roth IRA, chances are you're earning a decent amount of money, enough money that you could invest aggressively and have a sizable amount before you turn 59 years old. So especially with no mortgage payment, you could be investing a ton of money very rapidly if you don't qualify for a Roth IRA and you have no home mortgage. So it's difficult to give specific advice on this. Just know that if you're looking to just have something waiting for you when you turn 59 to have a decent retirement, have some money waiting for you, then just keep contributing to your IRA. It'll accomplish that. If you're looking to build up a sizable portfolio before then, then I would at least cut down on the IRA contributions. Pretty much, if you think that you're going to be using this money before you turn 59, then you need to start putting it into your taxable portfolio. That's the answer right there. If there's any reason you're going to start using it before you turn 59, start putting it in your taxable portfolio. Because every dollar that you're putting into that IRA is locked in there till you're 59, unless you want to pay a tax penalty. I don't know how much of a help that is, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm fine only putting five, $6,000 into a retirement account to have something there when I turn 59, and then putting a lot of money diligently into my taxable account. So the taxable account that I have, the one that I show off, I'm, I think I averaged it over since I started investing and it's averaged like $2,300 a month that I'm putting in that. So I'm budgeting strictly, putting as much money as I can into that every single month, knowing that the reason that I'm doing it is because I want to be able to retire before I turn 59. So that is the big reason that it's in a taxable account is I want to be able to potentially use this money before I turn the traditional retirement age. All right, well, that's going to be all of it for today. I appreciate everybody that has subscribed. If you guys like the channel, be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And thanks for everybody that shares the channel with their friends and family. I really appreciate you guys doing that. I've heard people say, hey, I shared this with five of my friends, you know, and they really love the content. So thanks for everybody that does that. But otherwise, that's, that's all for me. I'll catch you guys next time.